out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. It's true. And um, as you know, we love indie pop. We also love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Martin Atkins, drummer with the likes of Public Image Limited, also Ministry, Killing Joke, and to make it even more exciting than to keep himself busy, Pig Face, indeed. So, this is the interview which, which I conducted last, well, earlier this week. But when that is, who knows? It's gone. It's been and gone now. Um, and after a bit of casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject of the early years and Martin's introduction into music. Martin, save this interview now. My dad bought me a drum kit when I was nine years old. I was listening to Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Uriah Heep. Um, Todd Rundgren, uh, uh, Gentle Giant, all kinds of crazy shit. Yes. And all, of course, back then the pop charts were huge. So I used to get, there was a magazine that was just the words of the songs. I think it was called Words. <laughs> you know? um, so, um, <laughs> and then my dad started taking me to see. Um, uh, New Orleans jazz stuff um, and um, then I started playing in bands and um, got pulled into the technical uh, rock approach and then punk came along and blew everything out of the water. Yes. So going back to that early 70s, because I was listening, you know, like you said, Top of the Pops was a religious experience. Um, Sunday evening, you know, the top 20 on Radio 1 was very kind of important as well. And obviously we were, I was listening to the the glam stuff and very excited about Gary Glitter and the suite. And yep, saw Gary Glitter live, yeah, yeah. You know, awesome drumming. And um, and then it was thankfully David Bowie's Space Oddity. That was my first single and first album as Changes One. So why why the drums? Because up to then, you know, we hadn't even come across Cozy Powell, had we? Um, well, my dad bought me a drum kit. I think when I was in primary school, uh I was given a snare drum. Um and one of the school dinner ladies was making conversation with my mom at the bus stop and said, ooh, your Martin's brilliant on that drum, which how fucking ridiculous is that? How like an, an eight-year-old eight with a snare drum, you know? And so I guess my mom told my dad they were down the market in Durham and they saw this... Um, old dilapidated drum kit uh and they bought me this drum kit with you know real pigskin drum heads um and um you know when when you're nine and your absent father buys you a drum kit you play drums if he bought me a xylophone this would be a very different discussion if yes. he bought me a lawnmower this would be like my landscape gardening tips <laughs> Because that would be, most parents would think that was a really bad idea. You should have stuck to the ukulele, but drum kits, bagpipes, not the sort of thing you want your child playing, really. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it's kind of almost like a gag gift that you would get your sister's kid, you know. Um, and and where we lived, uh, High Shincliffe, in, in just outside of Durham, people would say to me from like, 20 houses up the street. Ooh, I hear you were practicing last night. I'm like, who told you? And like, nobody needs to tell us. So you can hear your drums all the way up around the neighborhood, you know? Yes. Um, so yeah, my dad bought me a kit. I started playing. And then, then yeah, Cozy Powell, Dance with the Devil. I went to see Cozy Powell at the Top Hat Club in Spennymoor. Yes. Um, uh, I remember that very well, yeah. And I remember how unusual it was seeing a drum on, on top of the pops doing a whole three yeah. and a half minutes of drum drumming. Well, well, you also had Dave Clark with the Dave Clark Five, Don Powell with Slade, that's why I chew gum on stage, you know. 
I, I have to chew gum now, otherwise I bite my tongue. Um, so yeah, yeah, interesting times. Yes. So did you get any tuition? Did anybody actually start to sort of give you some sort of, this is what you need to do, the, 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 the mechanics of being a drummer? Um, yes, but I gave up really quickly. It was the mechanics of being a timpani drummer in an orchestra, sight reading. And I'm just like, well, this isn't helping me at all. You know, I just used to play along to records at home for four or five hours a day. Right. So you were doing your Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours. You were just kind of putting it in. Yeah. So when, so with, because my brother was, I have to confess, he was seven years older and he was really into prog rock, though he did have Deep Purple and Black Sabbath in, in his record collection. So I, I loved the work of Yes and Genesis and Barclay James Harvest. Yeah. So punk yeah. came along, he didn't like punk at all. And I kind of missed it because I was a bit too young. So did you, did, was, was that moment when you saw people like the Sex Pistols, Pistols The Clash, The Buzzcocks, did you think, God, that is, that's my gang? No. Um, so... So I don't know, when was that? 77? Uh, so I'm 16, 17, 18, I don't know. Um, and I was nine, 10 years into my super Billy Cobham, technically proficient, you know, um, off time, yes, Genesis, all that stuff. Phil Collins, you know, <laughs> Neil Peart, oh my God, you know, whatever I was listening to. And, Bill um, Bruford, Bill Bruford, yeah, uh, King Crimson, Lark's Tongue in Aspic, um, all this crazy stuff, and it was like, what the fuck, you know? And it's like, here's a chord, here's another start a band. No, I've spent ten years growing my craft, you fuckers. And I was in a, a a band called Winter's Day and a band called The Mind, M Y N D, in the north of England, Mellotrons. You know, we were doing yes covers, um, double necked guitars, 12 string and a six string. And the, uh, uh, the guy, oh my God, I've forgotten his name, um, whose band Winter's Day was. He had these, you know, flared sleeve, beautiful lace up shirts. And, um, uh, and his brother, uh, so we were, you know, we were like really technically proficient motherfuckers, right? And, um, and his brother starts drumming in a band called Penetration. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, well that's not, you know, that's not really, ding, 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 ding. it's not really complicated. And, uh, and then it's like, next thing you know, they're in Melody Maker and NME and Sounds and, and Penetration started to become uh, pretty big. And um, so uh, uh, I think I got tired of being in this big prog rock band in the Northeast of England went down to London for some auditions and with kind of prog rock bands. And then I saw what was happening in London. I just missed uh, an audition for PIL when the Sex Pistols broke up and I ended up moving to London and getting involved with it. But so I saw some penetration shows, some early punk shows, but I was, I was a child of post-punk not yes. punk really yeah yes so then when 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 was the moment when you sort of managed to get into peel well um i called up virgin records when the first set of auditions happened um and uh they're like great you know auditions are friday and i'm like well i've been in london for five days uh, i don't have any more money i've got to go back up north and my dad arranged for a ride for me with a moving company um, with my drum kit and um i'm like can i have an audition today and they're like no the auditions are friday you know and uh and so i'm like okay well i'm really sorry i can't do it but i'm the man for the job i don't give a fuck but i'm really good which is exactly what you want you don't want somebody who doesn't give a fuck and, and the shit you know and um uh, um they said well no you'd sound like you'd be really good but the auditions are friday so I went back up north and realized immediately I just made a mistake that there was some crazy, exciting shit going on in London. And within a couple of weeks of going back up north, I moved down to London. Actually, the, the rest of the band moved down with me. Uh, we would do covers Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at a pub and the Elephant Castle. 
Uh, I worked for the government during the day. Uh, and then just kind of stayed in amongst it for the next two years as Pill went through their first five drummers. <laughs> it's so spinal tap. So then what happened? What, what's the moment when you sort of managed to sort of become part of the outfit? Well, um, uh, you know, back in those days, um, after 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, there was nothing to do. So I would invariably like read through old sounds, old melody makers. And um, I, I saw, you know, pill fire drummer, which, you know, I think was Dudansky, Richard Dudansky. And it was Jim Walker, Dudansky, somebody else, Carl Burns. But it was an old copy of Melody Maker. And in the time between me reading it, they fired Dudansky, hired Carl Burns from the fall and set him on fire, ironically. Um, <laughs> and so when I called up Virgin, and by this time I had Jeanette Lee's phone number, her mother's phone number, I would just keep calling everybody. And they're like, yeah, well, come on over to the townhouse on Sunday. And I thought that was my audition. Uh, and I ended up sitting behind the kit and co-writing Bad Baby. Right, blimey. And did it, I mean, sort of having done a lot of bands, you know, interviewed a lot of bands over X amount of years. I mean, it does take a while to sort of fit in and every musician has a different style. Did you slip into the, the, the sort of other threes playing quite, seamlessly or did it feel a bit awkward um well how to describe that um uh, most notably for me when i when i joined killing joke there was uh, absorbing paul ferguson style changed the way i drum i think that was definitely added some colors to my palette you know and i think i added some physicality to Paul's drumming style. Um, with, with Pill, I mean, beats like chant, bah, 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 I mean, you know, I just jacked up the BPM a little bit, and made it more aggressive. Um, songs like religion, you know, there was some stuttery stuff, but um, I was familiar with all of the songs yeah. uh, and was familiar with some kind of dubby, moments and ideas like that and so uh, it was fairly easy to absorb pop tones careering fodder stomp i mean you know uh, uh all of those songs really yes because the rhythm section of bands you know from you know seeing people like sly and robbie to you know you got sort of john mcphee and mick fleetwood and then obviously bill wyman and um Charlie Watts. I mean, it's such a kind of key part of a band to sort of keep that. And even, you know, I have to say, you know, I was a huge indie fan in the 80s. So people like the Smiths, I just thought had an amazing rhythm section. So did you sort of gel, you know, did you have a good partnership within that kind of time quite quickly? Because obviously you're young, you know, there's lots of people drinking, smoking, all that kind of stuff. And then focusing on the music is quite, you know, looking back on it. Well, now, you know, everything would be quite straightforward because you'd all be so much more together. But then I just wondered how that kind of shaped up. Well, I don't know it's necessarily the case that we're more together, um, but uh, I gelled with Wobble pretty quickly. Um, and we began to speak a kind of a shorthand, you know. Um, similarly, when myself and Paul Raven in Killing Joke, um, I would say to the crew, uh, be quiet, Max, you asshole dog. Um, I'd say to the crew, I'm like, uh, so we were touring with Pigface, and um, it's, it's my band, and Paul Raven jumped on stage in Toronto, and I'm like, what, what's going on? my drums are louder and the crew are like, I, I just, it became this thing I used to tell people about. And he jumped on stage with us in Toronto and the crew are like, fuck, your drums are louder. And it, once, if you work with digital audio, you start to understand the, the push and pull of a rhythm section and how it's like microns of time um, that make the difference between super cool and engaging bullshit yes. and um, myself and Raven combined just to be this thing and I felt that with a bunch of I'm fortunate to feel that with a bunch of really great bass players 
Yes. I, I, I gelled pretty quickly with Wobble, but, you know, I was reflecting on this yesterday because I'm, I'm doing a series of events for the 40th anniversary of the first PIL tour of North America. And, um, uh, I mean, the first show in Boston was our third show together. We did the Peel Sessions, Old Grey Whistle Test, two shows in Paris, and then here we are in Boston. So two, two very short things, and then Boston was our third show, and, and we were tight, you know. But um, as I was getting used to the weird thing to being a band with Johnny Rotten, not to mention Wobble, Keith Levine, Jeanette, Dave Crow, um, as I was just getting used to that, playing to 10,000 people at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles or doing live television. I mean, Wobble, I think, had already decided at that point. He was two, two and a half years in, and he was kind of done. So um, it was a very short-lived but but pretty cool relationship. I worked with Wobble on his Betrayal album, um, and we've worked together since, and we still talk. But yes. It was a very short-lived uh, rhythm section. Yes, but then, I mean, because I was watching a film, it was the L7, you know, and they, their sort of early years, and my God, they looked so debauched and wrecked, you know, in all sort of all their glory. And you just think, how did you keep it all together, even for that short time to literally go on stage, perform, record, and sort of manage to sort of, you know, not just, as you said, kind of um, make just a noise, but something that is quite constructive. And obviously, you know, there was a lot of debauchery at that stage, wasn't there? I mean, talking to Fast Eddie, you know, with uh, in Motorhead, and he, you know, he's, he's like, they made three amazing albums, that, that sort of the trio, that first trio. And yeah, you know, the amount of drugs and drink that was going on and fighting within the band, I mean, it was all going to fall apart. But within that, they were moments of genius. And I just often find that quite amazing that, people got it together just enough to create something. Well, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure I gr agree with your, uh, uh, so I don't think that energy is a bad thing. I remember a show in Atlanta where bottles were thrown backstage, um, but oh my God, when we went back out on stage, I, want, I wanted my drums to be Keith Levine's face. I've never hit my drum so hard. And, you know, the, it isn't true that, I think, uh, I think John has a band now. I think since I left in 80, at the end of 85, uh, I think John uh, probably felt betrayed, you know, the last member of, of that pill uh, to, to leave. Um, and I think he went the kind of easy route, the easy route, because I'm in America, of just hiring some people. But the problem is when you hire people, they're just going to say, whoa, <laughs> amazing again today. I did it. Your pants are amazing. Whereas me and Wobble can go, go fuck yourself, you fuck. I mean, um, I, I can't overestimate the importance of that kind of feedback. Yeah. Um, and um, the eradication of tension outside of the studio and off the stage doesn't mean shit on stage. And I, I think, uh, you know, I, I corral my own herd of cats called Pigface, which has got over 550 different members from the late Genesis PRs to Randy Blythe of Lamb of God to Mary Biker to all kinds of amazing people. But in the early stages of Pigface, I'd be like, oh, fuck, you know, these two people are a handful. They've worked out a deal with a merch company. They've got 15 people on the guest list. This is a business nightmare. But I remember my lessons from, from the early 80s, and I'm like, I'd, I'd rather deal with hustlers, entrepreneurs, um, who are going to make their own path no matter what, and, and just harness that energy, kind of, than have a bunch of people standing in line and obeying orders. It's bullshit.
Yes, I guess so. It is tricky, though, because in the 80s, I mean, it was, you know, there was the kind of, to keep it simple, I suppose there was punk, post-punk, then you had the indie sound, you know, very epitomised by the people like the Smiths from sort of 83 to 87, and then you, then you had that dancing because everyone was taking ecstasy, grunge, and then sort of pig face, and then during that period, there was those kind of bands like Silverfish and the Faith Healers and My Bloody Valentine, I mean, and so with talking to a lot of people especially the 80s indie scene they got to 87 88 where they thought actually no one cares about us anymore they want the happy mondays they want the soup dragons they want primal scream and then suddenly that goes and then there's the grunge i mean when you brought out pig face i mean what were your what was your sort of experience of the rest of the 80s after pill well so after pill i gave up the music business completely i'm like if it isn't about a house in los angeles with a swimming pool a top five worldwide single, which this is not a love song was, um, Japan, Australia. If this is shit and it was shit, then I, what am I doing in the music business? So I started just doing construction um, until Geordie from Killing Joke asked me to join Killing Joke. So that was the end of the 80s for me was uh, working with Killing Joke and starting my label and then working with Ministry starting pig face yes because it's it's quite because because you work with chris Connolly, don't you who was in yeah. finney tribe which was one of those great bands that we loved in the 80s uh, the scenery behind me is from the tour i did with chris in 92 93 the <laughs> max shut up <laughs> hi <laughs> hold on a second what are you doing what are you doing be quiet hey Hey, 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 stop it, man. Just stop. <laughs> it's been a stop. Max, can you just stop? Yes. Sorry. Uh, probably FedEx. <laughs> probably trying to do a delivery from Amazon. But yeah, so, so pig face, when did you, because, you know, everyone has an idea in the middle of the night or when you've had lots to drink, then you wake up the next day and think that's a really bad idea. But you sort of run with this quite amazing concept, don't you? Well, so it started halfway through the ministry tour. Myself and Bill Rieflin, rest in peace, Bill Rieflin, you know. Um, uh, there we are, two drummers, kind of bizarre glitter band. Um, um, and, and we both had to warm up. The ministry songs were crazily fast. Um, uh, burning inside, uh, just crazily fast stuff. And um, so we both had our practice pads. And one drummer on a practice pad is bad. Two drummers on two practice pads. We'd have to go, um, you know, five rooms down the hallway to warm up for half an hour. And so we'd talk. And in the talking, um, we can't, I, I said, oh, I can't help but think what would happen. We're a fantastic ministry cover band. What would happen if we just did something else with no rules? And uh, so me and Bill Riffle, like, yeah, we should do that. We booked studio time at Chicago Tracks Recording for the day after the tour ended. Because if everybody had gone, like NS from KMFDM back to Germany, if everybody had gone wherever they were going, the opportunity would be lost. So we went straight in the studio and recorded. Yes. Uh, and that was it. And we sold 12,000 albums in a week. Nobody wanted to release it. Touch and go, wax tracks, no TVT, nobody wanted it. So I'm like, well, fuck, I've got my tiny label. Uh, Corey from Touch and Go said, I don't want to release this, Martin, but I'll help you do it on your label. I'm like, what? Okay. It sold 12,000 in the first week. Yeah. And, and really helped. And so we're like, fuck, we should go tour. And, and it just became this freeform crazy thing, which, um, I think because of my punk and pill, there are no, there's no set list. The songs have no structure. Everything's free form. Uh, I applied that to pig face and um, kind of crazy. Yes. And, and, you worked, and you worked with the amazing Steve Albini on that. Was that the, that, that particular release? Yeah. Well, Steve did that. He, Steve had also done the, um, he did the demos for Killing Joke, Money Is Not Our God. Uh, we did those here in Chicago. In fact, I, I bought the tape machine that he did that on. I have Steve's tape machines in my studio now. 
Yes. I mean, and what what I found, and I mean, it's kind of interesting because most people have a five year narrative. You know, they get together, they have a band, 12 months, 18 months. John Peel plays the single. They have the session. Their first album is quite good. Second album, not so good. They really get annoyed with each other. If anybody ever tours America, they come back, go, fuck it. We're never doing that. We're going to break up. Whereas you're sort of you've had your amazing experience, you know, in the early 80s. Then you've come back with this incredible, colossal kind of project, which is quite unusual, isn't it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, so, um, I, I, I don't want to say I've been lucky because I, I work really hard. Um, uh, but I, I think I recognized in industrial music, the energy that I experienced in London during punk and post-punk. And so I moved to Chicago, you know, uh, I, I, I packed up my things and moved to New York in 82, 83. And I packed up my things and moved to Chicago in 89 to be around industrial and um, worked hard at my label. But then, you know, I, I, it's great to talk about this, you know, 50 year career that I've had. I started playing drums when I was nine. So I've been playing drums for 51 years, but I've had, my goodness, I must have had a five to seven year period where I really didn't play drums much at all, right? I started, uh, I started booking these big tours with Pigface and uh, uh, we were doing 80,000 promotional postcards with 10 different partners, uh, a, a piercing company, an alcohol, Jägermeister, an alcohol company, different companies. And then we do 20,000 promotional CDs to send out to our street team kids. And I started to look for interns at, at a university, a school here in town called Columbia College. And I went to Columbia College and did a presentation to show them why they should give me interns, that I wouldn't be wasting their time. They gained some knowledge. And, and the faculty said, uh, when could you start? And, I'm, and I actually said, I can put people in my car now. They can come and help stuff envelopes back at the office. And they're like, no, when could you start teaching? I'm like, teaching what? They're like, this, the business of touring. I'm like, what are you talking about? And, and I just thought, I think I had two kids at the time. I have four boys now. I just thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, this is a bit weird. And, and I thought that would be an opportunity. Turns out the opportunity was that there wasn't a book about touring and there wasn't really a curriculum. So I started to bring my stuff into class, devise exercises, write stuff down, interview people. And I made my first book. And because I'm a punk DIY kid, I released my first book myself. It sold 16,000 copies and created these opportunities for me to go around the world and speak. So I'm working on my pill book now. But I actually started on my pill book 14 years ago. And I was interrupted in that by my touring book and then all of these speaking opportunities. I've been to Norway five times, uh, uh, Melbourne, Australia, South America, um, Medellin, Colombia, all kinds of crazy places speaking that kind of sidetracked me. If... Uh, and the reason I'm babbling on about this is I haven't had a 40 year career since pill drumming, right? No. It, it, it's my steps away from the drum kit that have made me like, like we did pig face in November last year, like really want it right to work out, lose 20 pounds and fucking get back on my game. Um, because I really wanted it. If I'd been a kind of a just drumming one day a week for the last 40 years, I'd be a sad fuck, you know, like, let's talk drums. You know, uh, no, you know. Yes. So look, just because because one of my favorite bands of the 80s, uh, late 80s and early 90s was Silverfish. So on your second album, you have quite a few members of the band, don't you, Fuzz and Leslie? I mean, yeah. I mean, 
it's quite, I always thought, you know, with David Bowie, you know, when he did, you know, different albums and he had different musicians, I often wondered how he managed to get that dynamic. So with, with Pigface, again, each, each album is quite a colossal piece of work, isn't it? Because you've got all these different characters and attitudes and people, and you, you're having to be the host with the most, as we like to say. How do you sort of pull that together and make sure that, you know, everything's kind of on, on it so that no one's wasting their time or no one's getting too wrecked when they're supposed to be doing their... Bits, you know, I just was kind of curious how you sort of manage all that. Well, I don't know that I do that. I let it pull itself together. So, you know, Silverfish opened for Pigface in 91. And I was just, fucking Leslie is amazing. I mean, she's just amazing. Yes. Like, you know, she did a song with us called Chickasaw. Um, what album is that on? Notes from the Underground. Paul Ferguson from Killing Joke playing drums with me. And uh, she waited over 20 years to sing that song live with us. She came over in 2016 and, and we all just fucking cried in the rehearsal room. It's like, whoa, my God. Um, so she was singing with Silverfish and at the end of a Pigface show, it's just, we'd invite members of the audience, Al Keezy's from the Swans would like to wander up and play, but just whatever. And um, I remember a show at the Moore Theater in Seattle Washington and um, Silverfish came on stage. Fuzz wasn't playing guitar. He was playing like a, a broom, like a witch's broom, which of course he's like set that on fire. Another member of Silverfish found the uh, caretaker's closet and we're throwing toilet rolls and, you know, and there's fire and toilet rolls. And of course I'm, I'm still banned <laughs> from this place 20 years later. But um, um uh, they just had an energy. So when we started recording the Fook album in London, it was just like, all right, Mary Biker's here. Who else is here? People would wander in and out of the studio and, and contribute. Yes. Well, it was just, I mean, you, and you're, you're sort of somebody who can actually orchestrate and keep all this together while, on, well, we wouldn't have emails then, would we? You'd have dial up. But yeah, I'm just kind of, you know, just amazed because not, there's not many people who've done what you've done in creating these kind of super groups for each album, and especially because in the 90s, you were particularly prolific, weren't you? You know, you were bringing out albums all the time. There's... There's a lot, there's periods of, of, of all kinds of stuff. I was still in Killing Joke when I toured with Ministry and, um, and started Pigface. Um, the Murder Inc. album came out while we were in the studio with Pigface. So we had a listening session in one control room and a Pigface session in the other studio. I mean, yeah, pro prolific is the word. I had a project called The Opium Jukebox. I did four albums with The Opium Jukebox. I'd mix and produce other albums. I was in the studio 16 hours a day for a decade, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, you might not be familiar with an album I did called China Dub Sound System. It's kind of a lost pig face album. In 2007, eight and nine, I went to Beijing and I basically did a pig face album. It's me in China. Right. Um, there's like a, a street gang involved. There's a, a bunch of uh, hip hop kids, some local punk kids, Snapline, Subs, uh, Hang on the Box, uh, like the, the, the absolute cream of the Beijing underground at that time. Um, I was there to document the scene and make, I don't know what I was doing, trying to re-excite myself. Uh, and in the end, I ended up booking studio time, said, hey, I'm doing a pig face album. And we had Chinese pig face, uh, pig face shirts made and all these people. And then I thought it was too much of a stretch for a pig face fan to kind of understand it. And it should live in its own right. But I should have called it pig face China, yeah. uh, much like a Bob Hope and Bing Crosby yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, series of, of movies. Um, <laughs> But that, that kind of, people have asked me, am I doing new pig face now? And I think after doing it in China, um, uh, I, I don't know, I just don't, I don't feel it right now. Yes, well, quite. And it must have been a horrendous shot when Bill died earlier this year. Um, well, that was a while coming, um, but it came on the heels of, uh, one of my teaching colleagues 
unexpectedly just dropping dead at the age of 50. Um, big music guy, but was with EMI Records and, and we started teaching up in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, that was tough. Genesis P. Orridge, who was a, an really uh, a catalyst in early pig face. Um, and I released a bunch of albums with Genesis. Um, so, uh, and then Bill, yeah, I was at that point with Chris Connolly where Chris was gonna fly out the day before our Seattle show in May uh, to hang out with Bill and then come to the Seattle show with Pig Face and do the West Coast with us with Mary Biker, Leslie, Bob Rukoff, who played Bob Hunter, who played cello on the Fook album. It was like basically uh, NSH from KMFDM. 90% of the still living members of Pig Face were going to be performing songs from Fook. And then, and then Bill died, and then the virus hit, and it's yeah, it it it's been a little bit rough, yeah. Yeah, I could imagine actually. And did you manage? And have you managed to sort of keep an archive of all your material and all your recordings? Because obviously you've been around at so many places and trying to, you know, I sort of find mm -hmm. I don't even move around that much. Keeping hold of stuff and remembering where I put stuff is quite tricky. Uh, I'm actually going through my photo archives. So shooting 35 millimeter slides throughout my time with Pill. Um, I have got so many unreleased. Uh, I probably got 50 cassettes of unreleased material. Um, I've got so much Pill material. Yeah. Uh, and, and just chatting yesterday online, I, I found three interviews from 1980 on Boston radio stations. And... I'm like, oh, that's not my handwriting on the label. It was my handwriting on the J card, but right. it wasn't my handwriting. And the guy, Paul Sherman, <laughs> who who wrote the label, that was was on the phone call with every on the on the webinar. Uh, so yeah, my archives are just stupid. Yes, and I did an interview with um, Wobble a few years ago or a year ago. I mean, it's interesting how many people who have survived have really cleaned, cleaned themselves up and are doing lots of exercise and eating well and haven't drunk for eight years. Did you have a moment where you sort of thought, God, I've got to get myself together here. This is, if I'm gonna go for the next period of my life, I need to also clean up a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I was kind of sick at the end of pill. Um, I think it was part unhappiness, you know, uh, just the jumble of trying to of appearing very successful but being quite unhappy. Um, I stopped drinking for 16 years. Um, um, started drinking again when my dad died, um, which also might have something to do with me stepping away from my drum kit. As if you remember, he bought me my drum kit. So I don't know what that is in there somewhere. If it is in there, um, I I drink now. Um, I don't drink on the road. I can't drink on the road with pig face. Pig face is like a 150% balls to the wall. And and you can't drink that way and be in pig face. Um, so I, I, I'm i fairly moderate these days. Um, as I say, I'll have a drink here and there. Back in the day, it was bags of speed, you know. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I don't think you can you can get into your 60s and still do that stuff. Yeah. People who but do are catastrophic. Yes, well, and, and, uh, unless you're Lemmy, really, and you manage to get to 69. But but did you, I mean, it's quite amazing the four, kind of those four members of Peel are still alive. I mean, I mean, are you sort of surprised that you've all survived this far? Um, I'm surprised that Keith has. Yes. And... Uh, I mean, his problems became very obvious uh, and in retrospect were, should have been obvious almost immediately. But um, that surprises me. Al Jorgensen still being around is amazing. That's a feat of Lemmy-like proportions. Um, yes. <laughs> but um, but it's, it's really, um, it makes me think sometimes, only for a minute, but like, you look at what Wobble is doing, you look at what Jeanette is doing, um, it's like, oh, oh, holy shit, what, a, what an amazing, you know, bunch of fucking superheroes, you know, um, 
what would what would happen if we were doing stuff now? And the answer is it would just be someone would get thrown through a plate glass window. <laughs> but it's nice to think that for a minute. Yeah. Well, I, I think kind of as a fan, I always think reunions are a bad idea. And having spoke to a few members who did try to do the reunion for Coach Taylor and get some money, it didn't it didn't end well. I'm thinking of a band called Lush. It was not good. At oh, all. really? <laughs> well, I think um, I think John has nibbled around the edges of it. I think he asked Wobble to be involved in something at one point, but didn't offer him any money. Um, I know that Wobble and Keith did something at my suggestion. They did Metal Box in dub. Um, and they're like, uh, we were talking, the three of us were talking. And uh, uh, like, well, who would sing? I'm like, fuck singing. Let's do it in dub and get a trumpet player. You know, don't try and replace John. Do something different. That would be fun as fuck. And we could dub it up. And the next thing I know, that's what they went and did. And they hired a Johnny Rotten impersonator, which, yeah. I mean, I still love Wobble. I've spoken with Keith for my book. Uh, spoken to both of them for my book. Yes. It's kind of surprising and revelatory. Yeah. And was and 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 generally, you know, is it quite a nice vibe between the those you, Keith, you, Wobble, you know, as in... Me and Wobble, yes. Um, it's very strange. It's like when you're in school, um, I'm like, I don't know how old Wobble is, maybe he's 62 now. I, st I think he thinks I'm like some little kid, you know, like, hey, hey, you know, just because I joined Pill, kind of, I was the fourth or fifth drummer and we were only together for six or eight months with Wobble. Um, with Keith... It's interesting because when Keith starts to have a go, I'll be like, shut up, fuck off. You know, like, I just don't, whereas when I was 20 years old, it was very hurtful um, uh, to me. Uh, and I felt like Keith Levine, Clash, Pill, he was like four years ahead of me at school. Like, yes. you know, it's a sixth former. And really we're like two years apart, you know. Um, <laughs> We had this moment, which is, I've got to find the recording of it. Um, it stopped my household dead. My wife was in the kitchen listening. And I, was, I was just, I did a two hour conversation with Keith. And um, we were going back and backwards and forwards. I'm like, listen, Keith, I was fucking 21. And he's like, Martin, I was fucking 22. You know, and we're like, oh, fuck. We were both just fucking kids, you know. Uh, and that was great. Uh, and then. I don't know if we get along now or not. No. I, I don't even know. No, no, absolutely. But I did, I, it was quite interesting. I saw it was Stuart Copeland from the police who was talking about bands and reunions. And he, and he said when the police got back together again, everyone was having a good time, mainly because there was a lot of money being thrown out. But the two people who weren't was him and Sting. And then they decided to have band therapy. And, and, Sting, and, and Sting said, look, do you know, everything you said to me, hurt you know and it's like everything you've said over those decades went right through and you know and it's like oh shit I didn't know that <laughs> and it's like you know and then they kind of just got into a relationship where like let's just get to continue with the tour we're never going to be best mates but we we can be adults about this and by the way you know all those comments I remember them and they fucking hurt you know yeah <laughs> so I just wondered if you ever thought god band therapy I mean, not just with pill but with just life you know just sometimes sitting down and saying yeah, can we just, you know, have a few words here? Um, no, because, um, I mean, I, I mean, I left Pill in 85. You know, I, uh, um, there's, um, there's hurtful things that were said to other people, each other. But then there's, there's decades of credit claiming, you know, um, I, I just reread some interviews where John and Keith are like, Martin was a session drummer. He was just hired for those sessions, which implies they told me the beats to play on Flowers of Romance, which is just complete fucking bullshit. They weren't even in the studio. So, you know, it's like I, I'm, I'm much happier telling my story, which is it's not a, it's not a, here's John's book, here's Martin's book. Everybody is in my book. Yes. Everybody who wasn't in the Public Images Rotten documentary is in my book. Bystanders, fans, all kinds of people. A, a, a 
DJ from Butlins, Bognor Regis is given equal time with the Melvins, you know. Um, I'm loving it. Um, and I, I'm at a different point with Killing Joke. You know, I left Killing Joke to do pig face and ministry. And um, <clears throat> I think I had a fairly rough time with Jazz Coleman. Um, but over the last three or four years, um, we've been really quite cordial to each other. And that's, that's been quite nice. I think any time that the thing that pill hasn't experienced, uh, my, my pill camp is a death in the family. Uh, kill and joke has Paul Raven passed. Um, and I think you, you recalibrate your priorities after something like that happens. Yes. More open to just nice to be in a room with people, you know? Yeah. Well, I always remember Paul Weller always being very sniffy about the jam and the other members. And then I think one of the, I think it was the basis, his wife died. And I think it was like, oh, actually that kind of is, that's kind of, you know, mm, I better, I think I better rethink this. I better just be nice and kind because yeah, I, I can't be such a tit anymore. <laughs> and, then, and the fact is, you know, you say those words good or bad, but when your when your ideas, when your the essence of your being, which is what some ideas are, are mixed with other people's ideas on vinyl, you know, ten years after you reconcile in your head, maybe after somebody has left the planet, you still put the needle in the groove, and and that energy is still there, and. Um, the thing that I've experienced recently that nobody prepares you for is uh, bereavement at a time of Facebook. Being in a band and bereavement in a time of Facebook. Um, because instead of this afternoon, evening, whatever, intense morning experience, um, it's this protracted fucking two week long, you know, as, as different people find out, you know, this has happened or that's happened. Oh, here's a video clip, you know, or you just go to your Facebook, you just dealt with it. It's been a week and it's like, ah, ah, and boom, 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 boom. Here's the shit again. And a year after Bill Reeflin's passing, a year after Genesis is passing, eight years after Paul Raven passed, nine years after William Tucker passed, etc., etc. This stuff just, you know, starts to, to, uh, 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 Pete Shelley, um, that just came up on my feed yesterday. You know, it's, it's different. And once you've experienced that, I think you're more tolerant, more open, more humble and welcoming of the people who are still around. Mm. Actually, the worst thing on Facebook, <clears throat> well, there probably quite a few, but when you get, oh, yes, it's so-and-so's birthday, and you think, oh, they've been dead five fucking years. I wish someone would sort that out, because it's a real pain in the arse. You know, you just think, oh, God, yes, Kevin, that was my good friend, and I, you know, yeah. thank you for reminding me it's his birthday. Well, the educator that I talked to you about, Mike Bailey, um, he passed like two months ago, and uh and it came up on Facebook like two days ago. Hey, play this game. You were Mike Bailey. It's like, oh, my God, you know. Yeah, too much. Look, so last question then. What would you say to a, an 18-year-old self, You're, you know, when you, were, when you were out there or just starting your journey, if, if you could have just said a couple of things to them as they, start, you know, as they entered the stage or the studio, say, and you say, oh, I'll, I'll just give you a few words of advice from an old man from 60. He's not old anymore. 60 is fine. I just wonder what that would be. Um, uh, I know exactly what that would be. Would be, um, hey, you're shy, um, and people are going to mistake that for being an aloof cunt. So, deal with your shyness. Be nice to people. And you know, there's a thing called a guest list, which I didn't know for like four years. <laughs> you know, um, I've got a guest list from '83 where I put Adam Yelch from the Beastie Boys on there. But so I, I got the hang of it. But on the first pill tour, I could have put 20 kids on the guest list and 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 uh, I met a bunch of people and I'm still friends with all of them. Uh, but I know I was drunk to deal with my shyness. And um, uh, I think I would have 
um, I'm fortunate to still be in the business and still have events and, and do sold out shows and, and do crazy stuff. But uh, God forbid my five years with pill was it completely, you know, um, cause it kind of happened. It was big very quickly. And um, I'm fortunate that I'm still friends with everybody that people I've had misunderstandings with um, and, and knock down fights I've been able to repair those bridges um, and I'm good friends with pretty much everybody from those days now um, so I would be I, I was going to say be more humble I was humble I was just shy which yeah. came off as being aloof and so I'd be more sober um, and I think if I dealt with my shyness that would have made me more sober anyway because I was drinking to combat my shyness so that would be my advice to me yes oh that's good advice that is very good shyness yet i know i'm very shy actually it's bizarre really but sometimes when i'm when i realize the people in this in a space kind of i don't know like me i'm all right but if i don't know if i am i'm kind of i'm one of those people you know who would like actually i'm making everyone uncomfortable i'm just going to go now bye <laughs> it's like, it's like, but i can't help that i just think Right, I think you'd all be happier if I just left. I'm just going. And it's like, no, no, don't. We like, okay, I didn't, I wasn't sure, you know, you need to give me better messages. <laughs> I, I used to do something back then, it was like, people would ask me for an autograph. I'm like, don't be fucking stupid. I'm fucking 20 years old, I've done nothing, you know. And in retrospect, it's like, what a fucking asshole. I thought I was being the common man, but... To the person wanting the autograph, I was just being an aloof asshole, you know. Uh, yeah, you just sign the autograph and be nice, you know. Yeah. Yes. And that, dear listener, if you still are, and frankly, it could have gone either way, is the end of the interview. That was me, David Eastor, in conversation with Martin Atkins to find out more about life in music and current activities with Pigface. And also he's got some interesting events coming up which have been on social media. He's doing webinars. So, um, yes, do check those out, find them, sign up. They might just change your life. And, uh, and if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And um, also all these shows and interviews and playlist shows as well, which I've done for radio, are all there on the Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86show. David Eastall, it's all there. And anyway, I'm going to say goodbye now. Have a great week.